please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. On May 14, 1973, America's first space station and first crewed research laboratory in space blasted off on the last Saturn V rocket. This was Skylab. Following a near-catastrophic design issue requiring in-orbit repairs by astronauts shortly after launch, Skylab's crew conducted hundreds of experiments and captured nearly a quarter of a million images of the sun with the onboard solar observatory. It was also an opportunity to learn about long-duration living in space. Skylab made it possible to learn about the effects longer missions in microgravity would have on astronauts and their equipment. I'm Ryan Fariselli. Join me as I speak with retired NASA engineer Kenny Mitchell about Skylab on this very special episode of Dare to Explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. You're a friend of the show. You've been on it before. Were you the first episode or were you our second? Second. Second, second episode. Okay. So it's kind of fun to have you I've back. I've listened to that recently. I said, damn, that was pretty good. It was all right, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I appreciate you coming back. It's, it's an honor to get to talk to you again. And today we're going to specifically be talking about Skylab because it's the summer of Skylab. Before we get started uh, to talk about Skylab, let's just briefly kind of remind folks who you are. You're Kenny Mitchell. And, uh, and you started working on all of these projects when you were just 18 years old. I couldn't so. go to work the day I checked in. I was still 17. <laughs> but the next day, I was officially a member of the Army Ballistic Missile Agency, which NASA didn't exist at that time. Well, it did, but it was just at headquarters. But uh, one year later, I became a charter member of the Marshall Space Flight Center. But I was a co-op student going to Auburn University, trying to get a mechanical engineering degree, work three months, go to school three months, work three months, go to school three months. Took five years, 12 quarters. I never thought, living in the city and everything of Huntsville, that uh, I'd have such a career, but uh, I did. It's been an amazing journey. It's just, the older you get, the more you reflect on your life. And Sure. How old are you now? 81. 81. Be 82 in September. That's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all have, a lot of us. In Skylab that uh, aren't around anymore. Yeah. You worked, before you worked on Skylab, you worked on some pretty big projects too, right? You the were Saturn a... program primarily. As a young engineer, everything I learned about aerospace and rocketry, I learned at the job, not at Auburn. And, uh, uh, but I had to have a sheepskin to ever have a job. So right. I finally got your sheepskin. <laughs> but uh, I've always enjoyed, I worked for Dr. Von Braun 10 years uh, under his leadership both at ABMA and that one year I was there and then before he went to headquarters. I uh, worked Saturn V and it was in the thermal control fluid dynamics area 
of cryogenics, super insulation for trying to keep the cryogenics from boiling off before you ever launched, base heating, all the hot gases that happen when you ignite that mama and uh, <laughs> uh, both upper stages and, and aerodynamic heating on the outside as well as the base heating down below the, the heat shields. And then uh, I got into orbital mechanics and things like that uh, of orbital heating, you know, not just a launch vehicle, but once you get a spacecraft into orbit, right? all the severity of that environment and trying to make it comfortable for people. So Skylab was my first experience in uh, what I call environmental control and life support, dealing with the crew. And it was Marshall's first experience in something outside of rockets. We were doing spacecraft. And then five months later, we launched it. We're recording actually live in the U.S. Space and Rocket Center here in Huntsville, Alabama for this episode. And they have a Saturn V in stages, hanging this whole giant... It's real hardware. Yeah, it's a It's, it's a not whole, a shell like the one standing up. Right. It's a whole wing of, a, of the museum where it is just this giant rocket hanging above your head. And as someone who didn't work on it, <laughs> when I walk through there, it always amazes me when I look up at it and I think, somebody thought of this and figured out how to make all of these things work. Do you, do you have that? Even, even though you worked on I it... I still am in awe. Right. And I take everyone to the first time we ever fired the booster, the first stage of the Saturn V, and they have this video there and the alarm's going off and Von Brown being told, we're going to fly the whole thing all at once. We're not flying at one stage at a time. He said, what? (laughs) Because he was used to being very methodical and George Mueller, the man in charge of human spaceflight, said, no, Warner. We'll never get to the moon doing it your way. We're going to fire it all at once. We did that twice. And then the limb in the Apollo system was way behind schedule. And Houston and Marshall got together and said, we need to do something, the third mission of the Saturn. It had worked. Right. We designed in, if this goes wrong, this is what we'll do. If that goes wrong, if that goes wrong twice, this is what we'll do. We had so much success designed into that rocket we weren't going to fail <laughs> and so the third mission Houston proposed to us that we send men to the moon on top of it first time you put a person on top of it we send them to the moon we don't have the guts anymore right of doing that too risky uh, Elon Musk he fires that super starship thing it blows up last month <laughs> he's, he's got a new one on another one out man <laughs> and that's that reminds me of von brown yeah. he never condemned his people if it failed he said find out what's wrong let's do it again yeah and uh and he was an engineer's engineer he bought into okay now all the nasa leadership at headquarters was overseas when we concocted apollo 8 and we put those boys on top of that rocket sent them to the moon in december of 68. And you'd only fired it twice before. Yeah. You only launched the whole thing twice. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. That took as much courage as Apollo 11. Yeah. And it was as historic to me. It was hard for me to believe. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> there they go. I wouldn't have wanted to be one of those yeah, guys. <laughs> and, and MIT hadn't even worked out the orbital dynamics of stopping the Apollo 
capsule and putting it in a lunar orbit and then learning how to get it out of lunar orbit and send it back to Earth. <laughs> that, that software had not been written. You know, software, which is a new word. Right. We had no computers. <laughs> Nothing like you talk about today. We used to have to punch cards, thousand cards, and they better all be in order <laughs> sequentially. Or you were going not going to have the computer. It'll just kick it out. Right. And you wait another 24 hours. for You carry these boxes of trays of cards up to our computational laboratory. And in three months after Apollo 7, we launched Apollo 8. We had all that done. It's amazing. Guts. Just yeah. pure guts and leadership. Yeah. And uh, in Skylab, we ended up being the same way. We took another giant leap. Right, so Skylab happened almost as soon as the lunar successes Came to happened, an end. right? And so, it was designed to do something. What's next? And Von Braun had always been a visionary, and he was selling this thing in 68. So and, so a year before we were on the moon, actually walking on the moon. We got approval to start looking at, let's build a space station in low Earth orbit and find out how long can people really live in space. So he was a genius and concerned with job security. Yeah. Well, both. <laughs> Uh, let's just say he n- he never lost his appetite for doing the unbelievable. Right. <laughs> you, know, you get tired of working on the same thing all the time, especially if you know it works. Right. So you want to be challenged. You yeah. want to do something else. So the whole idea of trying to take a third stage and make a living quarter out of it and to design a solar observatory we'd never designed, and Von Braun was out talking to all these world-class astronomers. And then he'd come back and literally sit down in our little office and say, can we really do this? <laughs> can you guys prove to me that we're going to give them the solar observatory they really want? Right. And he'd spend, he'd never announce he was coming. He'd just call up to my boss and say, I'm coming. We didn't have view graphs. We had flip charts. <laughs> so here we, we'd, we'd scramble. It was like a nuclear attack. You know, Von Brown's <laughs> coming up. And we'd sit down and start drawing up on charts what we had learned to date. We'd give them our pitch. And uh, both at the ATM level, Apollo Telescope Mount, which is a solar observatory, the life support of the crew living inside and working in space, the biomedical experiments and all that. Uh, my primary interaction at that time was the Apollo Telescope Mount, but it got broader and broader. Yeah. Because engineers... If, if you really enjoy what you're doing, and once you know you've whipped it, bring it on. What, what else we got to do? <laughs> yeah, right. So it's the kind of thing that uh, you got to have a lot of passion for, Yeah. Uh, not just career climbing. Uh, I was telling someone a while ago at a breakfast, we would work out at the Arsenal on a weekend. We had no air conditioning in these buildings <laughs> that we were in. And we would be in T-shirts and sweating like pigs, and all the paper would stick to you <laughs> at your desk. We loved it. And and people used to ask me, do you really ever believe? My my wife's grandmother never thought we went to the moon. She, she died at 94. Kenny, <laughs> tell me. You can tell me now. We didn't really go to the moon, did we? So she, Mama, she believed the conspiracy that we never went. She we just couldn't it. believe it. God's plan that man would go do that. <laughs> you're like, you're like I, I, I built I the said, rocket, I, I know. Said, Mama, no, it, we really did go. She said, oh, Kenny, you can tell me. And uh, she lived in Owens Crossroads. That's and, wonderful. Uh, to her dying day. And then a lot of people today still believe the earth is flat. Right. <laughs> it, it's a passion. And when you meet leadership that has more passion than you do, you'd follow them anywhere. Yeah, yeah. 
That's amazing. So Skylab began as a solar observatory, right? No, it was designed to convince ourselves men could leave Earth and survive and even come back and still survive. So the solar observatory was... It was just an, uh, one of the elements. Okay. So scientists bought in. You, need, you needed partners. You right. needed people begging Congress to fund this. Okay. Uh, and they were just a dimension of, hey, the sun's our life. Right, right. We know very little about it. If we're really going to do this, and Kennedy started it off because it was communism versus capitalism. Right. Versus democracy. He recognized he wasn't that much in favor of space exploration, but they were whipping our ass with propaganda. Yeah. And it was big. And people were saying, wow, wow. We had no wow. Right. But we caught them, and then we passed them. They knew we were working on Skylab. They had a smaller space station, I'll call it. It was called Salute. It was two people. They were having all kind of problems with technical. Yeah. But none of us knew how long we could stay in space. None of us. Whether it's space radiation or kill them when they bring them back in because of the G-loads that you're doing reentry. Uh, would they recover after they got back to normal again? There's all kind of questions, big questions. That why are we investing in something that's never going to happen? Right. And uh, we had to find out, was it possible? Skylab was big. And then it looked like when we lost it, we lost it. is the 50th anniversary of the launch of Skylab. The U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama is celebrating with the Summer of Skylab, a series of presentations, educational panels, and celebrity events taking place through November of 2023. Visit rocketcenter.com for more information. We didn't even know what happened. We could tell something bad had happened thermally. Right. And so that's my area. I was getting on a bus, and I find out they've got a problem. So all those honorees were thinking, what, 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 what? And I knew I wanted to get back to Huntsville as quick as I could. Because yeah. the next day, they were supposed to launch the Saturn 1B with the crew. <laughs> and I was down there to watch two launches, which was going to be so great. you got to fix it before yeah. you can get people in you there. you got to know what's wrong. Right, and right. And then you got to say, can I fix it? And then you got to train the crew to fix it right. and get up there and fix it. So that something, was all in 10 days. Yeah, so something a lot of people probably don't know is that Skylab didn't launch with people in it. No. We'll tell you the smart things we did that saved our ass lost that meteoroid debris shield. We're talking about the meteoroid debris not being properly ventilated so that as you went up, the pressure wasn't going to blow the thing off. It was venting, and we didn't properly design it to vent. And when it went, the whole array wanted to go. And you ever stuck your hand out in a car going 60 miles an hour, not 17,000 miles right. an hour? Yeah, how your hand is just being pulled back. You're trying to overcome it and keep it right well those one array just went completely open and got ripped off the other one got a strap and it didn't it didn't go if it had gone we'd really been in deep trouble 
but if you understand when you're in low earth orbit you go into the shadow of the earth and back out into the sun in the sky lab because it was going to be a solar observatory element uh, there it always wanted to be pointed to the sun where you got sunlight coming directly uh, perpendicular to the configuration right and our solar arrays were designed for the Apollo telescope mount was a windmill kind of structure. And the wings that we put on the workshop were designed, both of them, to when you're pointed to the sun, those solar rays are getting maximum solar array impact on the solar rays that are, one, creating electricity to be operating in the sun, two, recharging the batteries that you got to depend on when you go into the shadow. Sure. Because there's no electricity then except the batteries. So each one of those systems was designed with 4,000 watts of electrical energy can be generated by the ATM. 4,000 watts could be generated by the uh, workshop. 8,000 watts, plenty of power. And I was in the meeting when they made the decision, chief engineer of the Apollo telescope mount, the chief engineer of the orbital workshop, and they said, why don't we cross-strap? our electrical power. If you ever need some more, I'll give you some because I got more than I need. And if I ever need some, you can send me some. This is almost a second. We'll save each other. This is a second thought, right? Yeah. It was a good thought. It was just conservatism. Why not? Why not cross-strap the electricity? It's like having your generator when the TVA fails. Yeah. You know, turn it on. Everything's still, you're still keeping warm. But it wasn't part of the original design. No, it wasn't. It, It evolved. And, and, and that's what saved, saved their butts, right? It saved us because the ATM was the only one up there with power. It immediately turned around. We oriented the workshop and the ATM at the sun, and the Miro debris shield was supposed to never be gone because the surface underneath it was going to absorb tremendous amount of energy and couldn't emit it. So the wall of the workshop got up to 350 degrees outside. Wow. Immediately. How does that yeah? How does that affect the people inside? Because if that wall is getting that hot, well, they they not only that, but we had a lot of material inside. You ever go into a house with a carpet that's new and it's fresh and yeah, and it smells. Yeah, well, yeah. that's called contaminants okay. in the atmosphere. If you heat it up, they'll boil off even more, and it can become very toxic. Right in a closed habitat where the crew couldn't breathe, they would die. Yeah, and we knew that was increasing. So when the crew finally did get up there, finally tried to save it, which they did, they had to go in with mask on. Really? Yeah, and and because they did not know how toxic was the environment, they knew it had been very, very. You ever got in your car when it's hot and it's just 150 degrees? You know, it's right? Not 350, and uh, it would kill them. The story of saving it is as big as the story of building it. You know, all the food that the crew was going to use was up there. All the film that they had to put into the Apollo telescope mount, they didn't have all that technology to beam it down to Earth. That did not exist. Everything was recorded on film. The crew would go out, get that film out of the ATM, store it until they could come back in the command module and put some fresh cartridges in there. So. Well, it's funny when you look at a, at a drawing or a picture of Skylab, people look at it and they think, why'd they design that so asymmetrical? 
right? Like, <laughs> totally. it, looks, it looks ugly. Yeah, but it is very ugly. <laughs> and then it was all compacted. Right. When it was put inside of a Saturn V. It was like a it little ball all, that unfolded. And then all of a sudden it gets up there, it's like magic. Right. It all started unfolding and pointing. But, on, but half of it, you know, on one side broke off or, or didn't work properly and, and felt, you know, was wasn't tore functional. off. Just wasn't right. functional. For either it was gone or yeah. it couldn't be exposed and... So when you look at those pictures and you see the one the one large solar panel sticking out, there is supposed to be a symmetrical one on the other side too. How did we take pictures of what was actually up there? Well, it was the military, you know, either with satellites or with ground systems, right? And we were told by the military, "Here's what's up there." So you yes. said there was ten days between when it it went up and when people went up. Yes. Was was that time extended? Like no. was it? No, we were working as fast as we could. So they were going night and day. <laughs> they were going whether you know, we were got photos uh, that has never been talked about. Where the hell did you get these photos? Right. And and we were looking at it, and we could see that strap around the other one that didn't fly off. Right. Because it never got properly just deployed. Can we cut that thing? Can we use a tree cutter? Kind of. Right. Can we design some tools? What are we going to do about that exposed surface that? We got to point this thing towards the sun. Yeah, we got to get a parasol. We got to get some kind of temporary cover that'll block the sun from hitting that module. Right. And we we said we got an airlock. Let's make a parasol. Let's stick it out and open it up. <laughs> All that was conceived, built, tested in the neutral buoyancy. We did everything night and day, twenty four seven. Then we launched the crew. It's, it was 11 days exactly like was, later. Was it frustrating to, I mean, because it seems like building the thing and getting it up is the hard part, right? Like, was it frustrating? Yeah. It was like, like well, you know how you can just throw the- in, you can just say, well, we lost it. Right. And we never had that attitude. People used to ask me, did you ever really believe you were going to get to the moon? And I'd tell them, I never had any thought that we weren't. <laughs> never crossed your mind. Never crossed my mind. We'll get there. And yeah, we can do it in this decade. Uh, and we got all the money we wanted. That's all it took. Right. We got it done. The impossible. And Von Brown used to say, use the word impossible with the greatest of caution. And that's become my motto. You can do just about anything Yeah. you can conceive of. And my friends who were part of my branch were sleeping on cots at the hospital. Uh, so they could be woke up when something else came up. Right. And uh, and they were our key leadership. And, and by Joe, working with Houston and, and ourselves, uh, and the first crew would come up to our neutral buoyancy facility and go through all of the things. And, of course, when they got up, up there, it didn't work like they thought. They had right. to hold Pete Conrad by his ankles <laughs> when he stuck his head out of the Apollo command module. Yeah, and they had to bring those wire cutters. And you can imagine, <clears throat> you ever seen a tree where you finally cut it and then it swings back and knocks you out of the tree? Right. <laughs> well, they knew that uh, when they cut that thing, it was going to spring out. That was the way it was designed. Right. And they just had to know what else going to happen to the cluster. <laughs> or, are the control moment gyros going to hold it stable enough or is it going to start spinning? Yeah. And, uh, all kind of things that... We're still the unknown. They did it. They saved it. Yeah. Tell me about what you did 
in the design of Skylab specifically? What was your role in? I had uh, three roles. Everybody that could could handle more than one area of responsibility. My biggest role was designing the thermal control system for the Apollo telescope mount. It had two key designs. They used the limb structure, the octagonal structure that uh, the limb module landed in as a base of a lot of equipment, the batteries, the control moment gyros, a lot of equipment that wasn't on the canister that was inside that octagon. And the canister could rotate, you know, so many, not not 360 because of fluid joints and all. Right. That wouldn't work. But my, um, my goal was designing the passive system so they could work in hot and cold environments and the canister that it would work for maintaining the 70 degrees plus or minus a tenth of a degree, trying to reject 500 watts inside of different instruments working. They had eight instruments and four quadrants, two instruments per quadrant mounted to an aluminum cruciform. I worked right up to taking the whole ATM down to Houston, putting it in the chamber and beaming it with their big solar system. You couldn't simulate the correct space environment, but you could simulate a response of a controlled environment to that, and then you could correct your models if we didn't have that right. Right so that we could then take it to the dynamic environment and see. And one of the things Von Brown was very concerned about, and he came and talked to us more than once, and and one time when I was presenting, we're ready to build our flight hardware now. He says, have you considered a heat pipe? Because what we had was a canister that fluid flowed through, and it would try to reject the heat from a radiator mounted on the outside, but it had a pump that was attached to the canister. You know, any pump you can hold your hand on is vibrating. Right. And he brought up in that meeting in front of hundreds of people to me, have you considered the jitter problem you got? And jitter is doing right. that, and it totally destroys your stability. Yeah, and you're trying to look through and a he, telescope. And he asked me that I looked at a heat pipe. I didn't know what a heat pipe was. <laughs> It was technology he'd read about in Mechanics Illustrated or something. <laughs> and I said, no, sir, we hadn't like I knew what he was talking about. And he said, would you look at that? I'm very worried about the pump and its stability not to vibrate the canister. I said, yes, sir, we'll look at that. So <laughs> I left the meeting. I said, what's a heat pipe? So you couldn't, but, and you couldn't just go back and Google it. Well, no, no, no. It was in secret documents sometimes, <laughs> right. you know. It wasn't necessarily secret. It was new technology. Yeah. Anyway, we looked at it all. And we convinced him the next time I had to stand up in front of him, I promise you that we have vibration isolated this pump. It is not going to create a jitter problem. And he said, fine. But I found out you couldn't verify the heat pipe technology on this large of a structure in a 1G environment. So I told him, I told him the story. We went and did our homework and we got back to him. He said, I understand. Okay, go ahead. But boy, that says a lot about, about, about him. You know, his, his trust. He trusts you. Yeah, like, you know, he's going to ask the questions, you know, go, go check this out. Sometimes he knows the answer. He just wants to know if you know the answer. <laughs> and he knew gravity would be a problem and verified. Right. It'd be a great risk that we built this thing and we slowed everything down Yeah, to go build this. But we could never prove to ourselves it'd probably work. It'd all be analytical hope. Right. And yeah. So same thing in crew comfort. The medical people had a human body, a thermal model of how the body is going to 
respond to different thermal environments and humidity and clothing and right. ventilation levels and comfort boxes. And I spent a lot of time trying to please the medical community that we were designing the environmental control and life support system. That's one of the pictures we were looking at a while ago. Yeah. We've got an altitude chamber, 5 PSI. The diffuser's in the floor because we turned the Skylab workshop upside down a few months before we flew. You can imagine <laughs> that. That's another heroic thing. That, uh, so all of a sudden, our ventilation was coming from the floor. So you designed it upright one direction, yeah. and then just before, you just decided the floor is going to be the same. It had a lot of rash, good rationale besides us, and so we went and tested it. Well, with ventilation in the floor and found out it's no problem. The, so, the crew did, or the test subject didn't feel. So you didn't flip everything. You only flipped what was necessary. That section called the crew quarters. <laughs> that was I mean, the second thing that I was heavily involved in. And the third was the biomedical experiments, which were all throughout the, the orbital workshop and, uh, and all the experimentation on humans of, and their survivability in space. They needed temperature control and everything that's equipment wouldn't over temp right so what was the temperature inside of skylab about comfortable <laughs> it was like about it. comfortable <laughs> it, was, it was we had to derive a comfort box and we just stayed it was between 72 and 74 degrees fahrenheit okay uh, ventilation levels that when air is thinner it can blow on you and it doesn't feel drafty because it's thin okay that's and, interesting it, you know you wouldn't think about it if it were coming out cool because you had to pick up heat in the workshop from the lights, the humans, and right. just stuff radiating. And so we had to prove to ourselves we had a thermostat that would work. And if the crew wanted to go in shorts and get a little warmer, right. that's okay. <laughs> just change the thermostat. So we had to prove to ourselves it would all work. So those were the three things. Uh, One of the main goals was to prove that humans could just survive in space for a little operate, while, right? Not just survive, but function. Uh, you know, successfully. And, and then be returned safely back to this environment. Two weeks, the Gemini went two weeks. With all the timelines we had and contingencies we had of going to the moon and getting back, it wouldn't be more than two weeks. Right. Mostly it was around 10 days too. And uh, and Skylab was how long? 28 days, the first mission. If they got back, okay. And, it, and then we launched the next crew. It was 56 days. And then we launched the last crew for 84 days. All the water was stored on board the workshop. All the water they'd ever need, like a water tank. None of the new arrivals brought water. With, they brought food with, but they no, didn't bring lot, Most of the time, if they brought some food, it was supplemental what was already up there. Wow. And all their clothing was up there for the next crew, the next crew. They're all different. Everything was there waiting on them to show up and start doing <laughs> their thing up there which was solar observatory. They had control and display panels. They could see what the cameras were seeing or the telescope. Sure. How large was this space, This crew, the crew compartment? The whole volume was about a 747. But no, really? Most people don't have a concept of volume when you say so many cubic feet or right. they used to square feet or something like that. There is no up and down in space. And so yeah. you use the whole volume. It was massive compared to the salute. It, it was even the command service module compared to the Soyuz module. If you ever see Apollo Soyuz mission data, you see how big we were <laughs> compared <laughs> yeah, to tiny. how small. They, they were little were. tiny They things, were really yeah. cramped in. Yeah. And uh, it was a huge undertaking. And it ended up 
being extremely successful. The Intuitive Planetarium is an immersive digital dome theater experience that offers educational astronomy shows, live entertainment, and exciting theater experiences. The only one of its kind in the Southeast, the Intuitive Planetarium at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center offers an 8K digital planetarium and digital dome experience. Additional time tickets are required for Intuitive Planetarium experiences. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today. part of the design of that and once it went up you were kind of that was kind of the I was going on the next thing after this you know what what was next you know you said one of the things that that the whole program was like was what's next what's next every when I'm giving tours at the space museum people have asked me of this whole thing in the Davidson Center what did we recover and I'll take them down the Apollo 16 capsule and I said that's all we got back everything else was gone and what I began to work on was a space shuttle of what are we going to fly in the space shuttle to justify building something reusable. And so Marshall started trying to build a laboratory inside a pressurized habitat and some unpressurized pallets in the shuttle payload and fly that back and forth and bring every, all the results back after one week or two weeks. But we were only going to stay. The shuttle couldn't stay longer than two weeks. Right. So I was assigned, go help design that habitat and the environmental control system. And then all of a sudden, Europe got involved and said, I want to be involved in human spaceflight. So after two years of us doing it in-house, NASA said, we can't afford building both of these. Europeans said, they'll build us our space lab if we'll let them fly their astronauts and do their, their thing in space. So it was agreed to, and I became the lead environmental control life support person for Space Lab. Spent a lot of time in Europe over seven years and, uh, and eventually became the environmental control and life support system branch chief. I had some great people that had mentored me, three generations. Yeah. It's not easy doing space exploration. Skylab proved to me, and I think people a lot smarter than me, we can survive in space. Did you ever think... You know, 55 years ago when, when all of this was, was getting started and you were beginning your career, like, did you ever think that, that one day you'd, you'd be hearing about people being prepared to go to Mars? Yeah. You did. I always <laughs> felt like, why not? I believe in warp speed. Everybody said, no, no, you, know, you can't go fast in the speed of light. I said, if you can imagine, you can. We just don't know how. Use the word impossible very carefully. That's right. <laughs> and and I, when I document that and I reflect on it, and I, I'm, I'm amazed myself. I got to be part of that. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm going to dare to explore this time and I'll let you know